Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Books and Booze. We are once again being brought to you by Miss Massacre's Guide to Murder and Vengeance by Michael Paul Gonzalez. We are here with Rebecca Jones Howe, author of Vile Men. This is Renee, and I'm drinking some super fucking cheap wine that is actually very delicious. Rebecca, how are you doing, and what are you drinking? I am doing very well. Um, Unfortunately, I don't get any alcohol in my drinks because I'm nearing the end of a pregnancy. Um, So I've been kind of testing different mocktails. Um, I usually love my gin. So over the whole course of these nine months, I've just been kind of trying to find something that's been close to gin. So usually it's ginger ale. Um, Right now I've been mixing it with a bit of club soda, and then I have some, like, flavored cordial that I just kind of throw in there, and that's lately been my drink of choice for the evenings. That's that's what I was I said this in the pre-show, but I'll repeat it because people heard last week we were talking about gin, and I said I was going to drink gin this week, and I chose not to so that I didn't, like, make you feel even more left out. Oh, it's getting close. I mean, it would have been sad if you had gin because sometimes I'll look at my, like, gin bottle collection in my kitchen, and I just, I get really sad, but it's not too much longer now. Yeah. Gin again. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Rob, what are you drinking? I'm drinking a big glass of Jim Beam because uh, I'm classy. Uh, yeah. I I almost, so so last week, uh, Thursday night, the night after we recorded the show, I went out to uh, to Shade where Todd Robinson bartends. Um, he's the author of The Hard Bounce and the editor of Thuglet. And I remember the gin conversation. I was like, I should order a gin and tonic. Wait, I've already had five whiskeys. I should not order a gin and tonic. So I'm still yeah. sort of in the market for some gin, but haven't gotten around to it yet. I feel like you made a very wise decision, though, to not to not cross like into the gin and tonic after five whiskeys territory. Yeah, that would have been rough. It was it was a weird night because of the uh, the Eric Garner protests were like threatening to shut down the ferry, and I had no way home. So I was like, I'm just going to order a sandwich and sit in this bar for another two hours. Um, yeah which is usually a recipe for disaster, but luckily didn't go too poorly. So my, the worst night of my, like the worst drinking night of my life, um, I was home because I, I lived on the East Coast for a while. I was home for the first time in like years and ended up at what had become like the lo- local bar because I hadn't lived there when I was old enough to drink. So I didn't know where everybody went. And we ended up at the bar where everybody went. And so everybody was, like, buying me a drink. And I kept doing, like, yeah, I'll have whatever you're having. It was, like, Jaeger bombs and Guinness and whiskey. And I think I had a glass of white wine. Yeah. I don't remember getting back to my mom's house other than just, like, praying I didn't puke in the cab. And then I ended up, I had been trying to decide if I was going to keep my prom dress or, like, donate it. And I ended up donating it to the trash because I just, like, desperately needed something to puke into instead of my mom's new carpet. So, so I, I, don't, I don't mix my, my booze anymore. That's just a rule I follow now after that. So I just I brought the whole, the whole show down with that. <laughs> well, unfortunately, you never, like, learn that until you've, like, done it, you know? Right. And mixed. My husband once, when we were still dating, um, 
he had a bunch of whiskeys and then had it with like followed it with like some really shitty beer. And when he came into bed with me that night, he just threw up like all over my brand new bed covers. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> and they were literally brand new. Like I just put them on that afternoon. Oh, that's see, and, and it's it's like I, I I've never met your husband, but I can tell he's an awesome guy because you still married him after that. <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, because he learned the lesson, I didn't have to. So yeah. Yeah. It's, so, always, it's always nice to learn these things as a couple. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. when I was headed off to college, my dad was uh. He was like, I'm not going to give you a lecture about drinking too much because you're going to do it anyway. And one night you're going to drink so much that you're going to want to fucking die. And then that's when you're going to learn your lesson. And I totally did. Uh, I drank like half of a fucking jug of wine and it was a rough night. So, yeah, that's what we do. We drink too much and we learn lessons. I learned I learned a valuable lesson doing this show one night, actually. Meeting, uh, meeting Travis Richardson in person when he read at uh, Books and Booth San Francisco, it was actually a great experience because the night he was on the show, I drank an entire, an entire bottle of wine. And I never, and it was white wines, so it was like very acidic, and I never have more than like two drinks during the show. And like, we ended up just staying, like, I don't know if he had a lot to drink or not or what. We ended up staying on the line like for like 45 minutes after the show, just bullshitting. I have no recollection of what was said. And then after that, I couldn't sleep in my bed because my bed was too high up. I had to go. <laughs> I had to go sleep on the couch because I was just like, I am too drunk. If I sleep in the bed, I'm going to throw up and or fall out of it. <laughs> Two behind the scenes for this episode. So, uh, yeah, let's get to well, it. Let's, let's get let's to violence. Yeah, let's talk about vile men and uh, okay. and what's going on there. Um, so, well, first, when is it out? Hmm? I would say first question is, when is it out? Um, I'm not sure. We don't have a specific date set in stone yet, but at this point in time, it's estimated about late summer next year. Okay. okay. I think it was about the last okay. kind of area I heard about, so about late summer. And now this is your first book, correct? Yeah, yeah, just a collection of um, short stories that I've kind of written over the past two years or so, I would guess. Okay. That's really cool because it's, it's so rare that, like, an author's first book is a short story collection anymore. So it's always kind of exciting to see that happen. Yeah, it was, um, like, it was really nice because having um, Richard there, because I met Richard through, um, well, originally The Cult and then Lit Reactor. So um, he's the editor of uh, Dark House Press, which is publishing the book, and um, right. yeah. he's always really kind of supported my work. So it was nice to have him to notice it because for the longest time I was just wondering if even putting out a short story collection and trying to get that published was even really viable for me. Now, did you go sort of sniffing around him, or was he sniffing around you? How did that work out? Um, he approached me originally about it, um, so that was really nice, just having that backup support, um, just the community aspect originally, because I know Richard's always kind of looking out and finding stories that he really likes, and he's always there to support artists and 
um, writers who he he really identifies with, I guess. So he's always there to try to offer them a, a helping hand to get their work out there. And now I, I feel like I know the answer to this question, but I'm not going to make a fool of myself. The majority of, majority of these have already been published like out in the world and are, are being collected, but are there new stories in here? Um, yeah, there's a couple new stories that will be exclusive ones. I'm still shopping some of them around to try to get them in into a couple magazines and places before the book comes out. But obviously, if I can't get those published anywhere, then they'll they'll be original stories as well. So, <laughs> all right, probably maybe probably about a quarter of them will will be original. I was gonna feel like a huge ass if you're like, no, they've all been published before, and I'm like, oh, well, I just didn't. <laughs> read all of them, I guess. (laughs) Because, I mean, like, this is the thing that's great. I'm super excited about getting to have you on the show finally. It's like, I've also, you know, I've been a a fan of your work since we first met um, in in an ill-fated anthology project that changed (laughs) everyone for the worse. But... We like, but we started having to like kind of make the rule of like some, you have to have a book to be on the show because otherwise we couldn't figure out like a, a legitimate way to like figure out who could be on the show and who couldn't because we didn't want to be like arbiters of quality, you know. Yeah. Um. So right, like right as we're getting ready to go out, it's like we got to get Rebecca because she has a book now. <laughs> <laughs> like right before the end. Right. <laughs> Slutting in right under the wire. Something I always thought, too, I'm just like, I just know it when they ask me to be on Books and Booze that I'm going to be pregnant. Like, I just know it, and that's what ended up happening. (laughs) I apologize. I do. That sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's just bad timing, but I don't know if that's on my part or yours. It's probably my (laughs) fault. Uh, oh, I've had to go. Way. I've had to go to two weddings sober over the last nine months. So I'm just like, it's your Ooh. fault. You decided to get married now. <laughs> Ooh, no one should have to go to a wedding sober. That's not cool. <laughs> Especially when you don't like the music. I find that's a really key component. Yeah, there, there was there was one night that um I was I was out at a karaoke bar and I couldn't drink. I think I was on antibiotics or something and like. My friends wanted to go there, and, like, I, I imagine it's somewhat similar to a wedding. And being sober in a karaoke bar is probably, like, the worst fucking experience. <laughs> yeah. It's well, just kind you're, of you're like, I, karaoke as an adult. Like, you have to be drunk to really enjoy it, right? Like, you really start to understand, like, the, the important social necessity of alcohol. <laughs> when you're just standing there looking at people, like, swinging around and falling down, you're like, this is... Like, you know, it kind of makes you miss it, and, you know, uh, it's, it's a bad scene. I would not want to be at a wedding sober. Um, if you guys want to hear, like, what – so many red flags. This is, like, the worst omen possible. But my first wedding, my to my ex, we decided on having a dry reception. Ooh. Yeah. I don't know why. I don't even know why. I think it was like a, a money thing, really. But like, yeah, that's just dumb. Yeah, my family's Irish. That wasn't even a that wasn't even an option. It wasn't even an option. Yeah, <laughs> we 
should have made people bring the, like BYOB. Yeah. But then I wouldn't have this story where like literally everything about my marriage was was like cursed from the start when we decided not to have booze at our wedding. So there you go. It makes a better story. It does. Yeah, we had booze, we had booze before my wedding. We were doing the rehearsal uh, of of the ceremony. Our ceremony was like literally like less than five minutes. It was just super really quick and easy. But uh, we're all standing up on the steps. It's a uh, we did it at this historical cultural institution on Staten Island, and it's really nice. They actually shot Boardwalk Empire there. It's like it's been around for years and years. It's historic. And uh, we're standing on the steps of this building, and my brother just pulls out of nowhere. I don't even know where the fuck he had it, just a case of beer, and just starts handing around <laughs> beers to people. And this is yeah, like three like hours that. before the wedding. And I'm like, all right, yeah, this is this is a good start. I thought you were going to be like, he just pulled out like a flask, and you're like, he brought out a case of beer. It's like, that takes some talent. Is your brother a magician? Yeah, just like, like out from behind him? and or <laughs> it, It's just, he, he was just standing there, and all of a sudden he's got it in his hand. He's like, look what I brought. And I'm like, you did good. <laughs> oh, my wedding, I had it like, we split our like ceremony and the reception apart from like the party afterwards because we had the wedding at my church. And so we had like a cocktail party reception after, and that was open bar. So it, I mean, it didn't get as insane as I thought it would have, but there was still this one dude, one of my coworkers at the time who um, I thought was a wedding crasher halfway through the night because I didn't recognize (laughs) him because he had like this Afro wig and all of these props from like our, like our guest photo book things. I was like, who the hell is this guy? <laughs> so, That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, like I have an actual wedding crash. You're like, what are you supposed to do in this situation? And then I realized who he was. So at least he didn't I get like that I out. I pass a decree that if you have a wedding crasher who's just having fun, you should embrace it. I know, but they're stealing your booze. Yeah. <laughs> or if they're having fun, though, right? Like, if you have somebody who's being an asshole, I feel like that's different. There's a different, like, standard operating procedure with dealing with an asshole wedding crasher versus someone who's, like, entertaining. I guess it would depend on the person. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> contemplate it. I mean, like, you know, if it was Vince Vaughn, literally Vince Vaughn, you wouldn't be mad. You'd be like, holy shit, it's Vince Vaughn. <laughs> I feel like maybe I've already had too much with that. That Yeah, it fell apart. Okay. Yep. So my favorite story in the collection is actually uh, Tourist, which is a more that's a more recent story that you had come out, right? Yeah, um, it came out. Well, it came out in the last issue of Pank, like Pank issue ten, the print issue. Um, and I originally wrote it the previous spring. Okay. What was that like spring twenty thirteen? I wrote it. Um, um, what I and, oh go ahead. Um, well, I was just trying to because I know Richard was really urging me to write some more, I guess, literary type of stories, because I had a lot of really, I guess, pulpy kind of noir-esque edgy pieces in there, so I really wanted to write something that was a bit more literary. So that's where that story originally came from. 
But I think that's what I liked about it is because, like, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love the stories in this book. Like, it's not like I have a problem with any of them. But I liked it because it was like, it was like a little, like, cool drink of water in the middle of all this, like, all these, well, it's called vile men, right? Like, most of the guys are pretty horrible. Um, <laughs> duh. But you get you get to this one and it's like, oh, well, actually, this is this one is kind of almost uplifting in a way. And then, you you know, you get to dive right back into the depths, but like why you bought the book. Like you don't buy a book called Vile Men if you want like a book full of uplifting stories. But <laughs> but I thought it was cool because it, it still managed to feel like the other stories and like have, it had stakes and it had like a darker feeling to it, but it had like kind of a nicer, like warmer ending. I don't really like happy endings usually, but I was like, I'm down with this one. Yeah, I don't I either. I usually I prefer ones where like the the protagonist kind of like learns something. Um, when I wrote that story, I wanted it to be a love story. And something that really pisses me off about love stories is that in the end, the girl is always ends up with the guy and it's always the guy that like changes her. And like, if she had left him, then she'd just be where she started originally. So with mm-hmm. tourists, I really wanted it to be the sort of story where their relationship and their love for each other actually changes the protagonist permanently. So even if the relationship weren't to continue, she would still have learned something from from the guy. Yeah. See, actually, and that's the thing I think is cool about it is like there's a lot of piece of shit guys in this in this book, but this guy is actually like start out like thinking maybe he's a sleaze. But yeah. he's like he wants her to improve herself. He doesn't want to fix her. Like he's like, well, I actually was afraid for you, but I knew you needed to do it. And I thought that was cool because so like that's in real life, like that's the kind of person you need on your side. But in movies, it's always like, and he taught me how to like believe in myself and he taught me how to whatever and he forced me into this experience like commit suicide in the end like yeah exactly (laughs) yeah I I don't like it when it turns into the sort of thing where the girl just depends on the man and at least with tourists I wanted to write I guess a little bit about a relationship that sort of has stereotypical implications on it so if it's a 20 something year old girl and you know like a middle aged man usually you have an idea about why these two people are together. Um, so in Tourist, it's really more, I guess the guy is lonely in his own way, and so is the girl, but they get together because they have a sort of shared mutual understanding of each other. And I think with a lot of relationships where one, one partner is older than the other, there must be that kind of understanding behind of it, you know? Yeah, I mean, I'm, my husband's almost a decade older than me, so... I don't, I don't like necessarily go in. Well, see, here's the difference. I don't, in real life, if I see people who have like a significant age difference, unless it's like really like mind-blowingly significant, like the guy's 60 and she's like 25, um, I usually just don't even think twice about it. But in fiction, sometimes you're like, oh, okay, I see where this is going. So it's nice to be surprised. Yeah, because the older guy's always like rich. And yeah. Like a bunch of stuff. And then that's how, you, and, and he's always handsome, and that's always what the girl finds appealing about him in the first place, 
is because he has some sort of power behind him. Yeah. So I really wanted and he's to avoid. Married or recently divorced, or yeah, like there's so many tropes that in the beginning of the story, like it's implied that they're going to come into play. Even some of the things that that the narrator says, and then as you read the story, like none of that happens, and it's like it. It's refreshing in a lot of ways, I guess, not just as being like a slight change where like, oh, thank goodness, like there's one decent person in this in this world, but like also like, oh, wow, that's a way to like bust all of the tropes, but still have it be really meaningful and like have me feel invested in it. Mm-hmm. I also think there's a lot of people who you can connect with in the world who you don't really think about in the first place, because I guess they just sort of blur into the background. Just regular people who, if you'd spent a moment or two to talk to them, even if it wasn't a romantic relationship, that yeah. you'd at least have some, you'd establish some sort of connection and they would actually change you just through you connecting with them. Yeah, I totally, I 100% agree with you on that. And I like seeing that in fiction. It's like people who are like crossing each other's paths and like they have some kind of a, I don't know the word I'm looking for. Like, they have, like, a major impact on each other, but they're not necessarily – it's not, like – Like a mutual understanding. Well, yeah, exactly. Like, you learn something from everybody you meet, whether it's in a positive way or a negative way. Like, you get something out of your interaction. So, yeah. Um, excuse me. So, when you're putting together a collection like this, how much does the order of stories like play into the way you're planning it? Oh, like the the way that they're ordered? Yeah. Um, I'm not sure because like a lot of the stories were kind of written just at various times. I wrote probably about half of them in a couple of the war competitions, the first two. Um, mm-hmm. So I I ordered them just in the way that I saw was kind of fit. I tried to vary them a little bit. Um, The order that they're in right now might not be the final order because Richard and the people behind Dark House do have a bit of a – they obviously have a say on that too. So I'm not really sure on what the final final edition is going to look like. You mentioned that some of these stories were written during war, and I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't mention that one of them was a story that you – you just call like I I got knocked out of war because I lost you on the story, which is inspiration. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, I really it's a great story. One. Yeah, yeah. Oh, really, I rewrote that one a little bit too. So the edition that um, the version that's going to end up being in the book is uh, a bit different and more detailed than the one that was originally published. Um, yeah. <laughs> Well, I can't wait to to read the rewrite then, because I felt like, oh well, I know this, well, I know this story, because I read it a lot, because I'm neurotic. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, okay. So here's the thing, because it's short stories, like I find like it's a little bit hard to talk about them without giving away like a lot of what makes them great. And obviously we want people to go out and like buy your book when it comes out or go like look up these stories and read them. But I feel like I said, you know, I don't really like a lot of these like stories that always have to find a way to make 
the ending happy. I feel like if there's, I feel like I like my endings either like everybody's just fucking broken at the end or like shit's not so great, but there's like a glimmer of hope. Right. So (laughs) one story, I'm not going to say what ending it fits, but it definitely fits one of those that I gave an example of was cat calls. And what I really liked about it is you, you turn the tables like where, what we're hearing a lot about all the time is women dealing with cat calls. And it's like, obviously like it's a real issue and it, and it happens. But like this, this story, you flip the tables and you put the man in the position of having to deal with a really forward woman who's like basically harassing him. Mm-hmm. Um, was that intentional? Like, were you like, I want to flip, I want to flip the script on this and and look at how it looks when it when the gender roles are reversed, or did you write it and then it was like, oh well, that just like that's how it happened, that's how it came out. Um, the cat calls originally, um, yeah, I did, I did have the intention of putting the spin on it, where it just being this woman that's just so forward with a man, and I don't know, I guess I got a little wary of writing it because. I mean, I'm sure there's men out there that experience catcalls, but usually the idea is that were a woman to be really sexually forward with a man in public, that a man would is supposed to appreciate that sort of that sort of gesture, I guess. Right. But I mean, we're all humans. I I would imagine that if it was just if you were just a dude walking down the street by yourself and a chick just came up and told you that you looked like it, you had a nice package through your pants that that would just kind of stop you a little bit and you'd have yeah. to think more. Yeah, so I I mean, I wanted to put the spin on it, but I really wanted it to just sort of be a human story and it to just yeah. for the for the girl to just slowly kind of chip away at this guy's insecurities cuz she does repeatedly call him daily um on on the train. So I I just I was trying to make it more of a human story. So I felt that maybe putting the spin on it because, I mean, there's so many female cat call stories out there. Not to say that any of the um, stories about women who experience, like, street harassment or aren't moving or anything, but especially now because it's such a prevalent um, topic in the media, I wanted to put some kind of spin on it. I think, in a way, it kind of also, even though, like, okay, so, like, it's an issue as far as women being catcalled. It's an issue that I'm obviously aware of. And it's something that like when I hear people that are dismissive of it or like, in my opinion, stupid about it, like I feel very passionately about it. But even so, even being like pretty well saturated on it myself, reading it with the tables turned also, I think gives like, it does make you think a little bit about what, these interactions can do to to the people involved in them and like how it's not just the thing that happens and like if you get upset about it it's because you're silly like no like it's pretty in in the story it's like it's pretty horrible what's happening to this guy and there is like that thing in in the story where he can't come out and say that it really fucking bothers him because, of course, if he said it really bothered him, everyone would be like, what's wrong with you? 
Yeah. So I thought it was, yeah, I thought it was really cool. There's a point in the story where he does tell his wife, because he's a married man, and he does tell his wife that there's this chick that's, you know, harassing him on the train, and his wife basically just kind of tells him not to worry about it, that it's not a big deal. Um, and I think it's, uh, for me personally, because I, I do identify as a feminist, it is hard to kind of debate all of these feminist issues that really come up a lot in the media. It's just really hard to debate them without kind of reiterating the same the same terms like rape yeah. culture and all that sort of stuff. And it just it's the sort of thing that people just get tired of. So that's why I put a lot of feminist kind of stuff in my writing. It's just I find it easier to tell a story about an issue than it is to just debate the issue with someone who doesn't agree with me. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and that's the thing too. Is like every so often, I feel like I've just hit a saturation point with like all of the stupid, horrible things going on in the world, and all of the like ridiculous debates surrounding them. Where I'm like, you know, like what I'm gonna do today is I'm gonna watch cat videos, and <laughs> I'm gonna just totally stay away from anything that could possibly be controversial. Cause I just don't have it in me to argue with anybody today. <laughs> but you know, you could go, okay, read this super awesome story and you know, hopefully people at least enjoy the story. Right. Yeah. And then we'll at least maybe get something out of it or identify with some portion of it. Um, and then, okay, and this is something I want to bring up, because I remember uh, talking to you about this before. There's a zombie story in here, right? Yeah. The better Places? Yeah, Better um, Places. I knew when it was originally published, you said, like, the guy said something like he doesn't usually, like, normally he wouldn't even look at a zombie story. Um, but he ended up publishing it because it's a fucking awesome story. Yeah. Um, um, or, um... No, I can't remember his name off the top of my head. Uh, the guy who publishes Poet Modern. Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course it's Pulp Modern. Oh, you want to hear a really funny story? Okay, so I was thinking, of course it's Pulp Modern, because I remember that, that uh, I bought my copy directly from you, and you sent the postcards out, and I got the Wanna Fuck My Bitch yeah. um, postcard, which is, like, one of my favorite things that I that I have. Like, it's, I just <laughs> love it. <laughs> If you made those, like, if you made packets of them, like, where I could buy, like, a pack of 10 on Etsy, I would totally fucking send those out to people. Not, like, you know, like, to my grandma, but I just slip that in the mail to a friend and let them experience that without explanation, you know? Yeah. Um, but what bad, Honestly, though, I think it's a good way to promote a story, at least. <laughs> to just at least take one of the most offensive lines out of it and just put it on a postcard. <laughs> but it feels like I know the story. I read the story. I read it before I got the book, I think. But um, but out of context, like on this like cool, like filtered, like hipster photo background with a... Um, the text over it, like it almost comes off as comical because it's so like that is out of place no matter where you are. Like it's in my office, it's on my desk, you know. <laughs> it's like want to fuck my bitch. Like that's <laughs> a relatively absurd thing for me to have on my desk. Like regardless. So on the one hand, 
I know where it's coming from, and I like the story, and it's like a cool little, you know, trinket from a cool story. But then on the other hand, it makes me laugh almost every time I see it. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, I still haven't come up with a better one. Because I usually do like the hipster graphics. For one yeah. thing, I just I just think the whole hipster graphic trend is just absolutely overrated. But like as a writer, it's really hard to get people to want to read your stuff when you just you know you post it on Facebook or Twitter or wherever. So I started making them just because it was it, it was a more striking way to get people to notice your work was through like these like shitty quote graphics that are just so overdone, but then you just see one that just says, want to fuck my bitch on it, and you're like, well, what the what the hell's the point of this? Right. And you got to look into it. It's true, though. Well, here's a piece of Books and Booze history, too. Like, I remember, this. see, I've been going through a lot of old stuff, um, old, uh, like, just all the random shit, like, when we were starting Books and Booze up, and, because, you know, we've had to, like, tile of our loose ends. Um but you did like one of our you did our first logo when we were yep. running off of a Facebook page and SoundCloud. Our our logo was like a picture that I took that you went through and like filtered it and did like worked magic on memified it for us. Yeah, and it was funny because like I somehow or another had like completely forgotten that and then ran across like the series of emails. Um. We were going back and forth talking about it. It was like, oh, yeah. We didn't always have, a, like, a real logo. Once we had a picture, I took on my, like, in my kitchen. Like, <laughs> um, oh, but here's the funny story I was going to tell, because you and I have both been published in Pantheon Magazine, but not the same issue. Yeah. And I was trying out a writer's group, and the, they want to meet you first, and they want you to bring something that you've, a couple things that you've written for them to read and get a feel for you. Well, I could not get my printer to work and I was running late. So I just grabbed, um, the books off the shelf that had my stories in them Mm -hmm. and took them. And then like, they're passing the books around. I was like, well, where's your story in this? And it was your issue of Pantheon that I brought, not mine. (laughs) I was like, Oh, I'm not in that one. (laughs) (laughs) That story's not even in Vile Men, the one that's in Pantheon. So <laughs> I just thought it was it was just way too porny and just almost too much. I don't know if that's oh, even something that's I can the, uh, That's the, the Gospel of Seth. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Or the yeah. Book of I Seth. I love that and it was, The Book of Seth. Yeah. I love yeah. that one. Great. Oh, it's literally porny because it's about a guy making porn. Yeah, it's, it was like Adam and Eve's third son, Seth, um, and it was like after, well, it's set in modern times, so basically like after Cain killed Abel, then um, Eve killed herself, and then Adam became like an alcoholic, and then Seth had to like try to keep the family going, and so he does so by making like gonzo porn. <laughs> it's so sacrilegious in a way. <laughs> And that's really not a story I proudly go and flaunt around very much. Yeah. But I'm glad people do like it. <laughs> I love I love that story. I didn't even, you know, because, like, I, I looked at the table of contents, and, like, I see all the stories that I recognize, and I didn't think about the ones that were missing. 
until you said that, oh, it's not in there. And I was like, oh, wait, I know that one. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not, yeah, I'm so not criticizing you for leaving it out. Oh, go ahead, Rob. <laughs> oh, uh, I was going to ask, so, Rebecca, what are you working on now? Um, unfortunately, I'm not really working on anything. I haven't done a whole lot of writing this year. Um, right now, I'm kind of just working with Richard to kind of finish off Vile Men. Um, I've been doing some edits and stuff, but right now I'm kind of working, or at least putting together some ideas for my first novel. But I have no idea when I'm actually going to start writing that. Is it a little like how how does that how does that change your process going from like a short story collection to the novel, or are you just not even like in that headspace yet? I don't even know. I have Scrivener. I've been writing notes in there. Like that's basically as far as I've gone. Um, a lot of the people I'm friends with, writers who are on Facebook, have been posting all their novel updates and kind of um, sort of what it's like to be writing a novel. I don't, I haven't really written a really long piece of fiction in quite a while, so I'm not even really quite sure how to get into that zone quite yet. Yeah, I tried Scrivener. Um, I, I felt like the time it was taking me to learn how to use it. I was like, fuck it, I'm just going to spend this time writing, and I'm just going to use That's Word. exactly what happened to me, yeah. It was too much of a learning curve. I, I tried using it, like, once, and then and then I gave up, and then the second time I tried it again, because I just, I don't know, I don't think I could write a novel just in Word and build off of it that way. I guess it just depends on the sort of way that you write. I'm not sure. Yeah. I, like, I've, like, half the people I talk to about Scrivener kind of just, tried to get into it and it just didn't work for them. So I guess it, it really does depend on the writer. I, I think the hardest part of, of the first novel is just trying to figure out your process. Cause it's like this big giant sprawling fucking thing. And everyone's got so many people have, have advice, but a lot of it is always conflicting, you know, and it, it's just yeah. sort of my my experience with my first one was like I have no fucking idea what I'm doing and there were so many false starts and going back and outlining and re outlining and doing all the shit. Yeah. And now doing the second one I finally kind of feel like, okay, I don't totally get this yet, but I'm slightly more comfortable with the process. My um official first novel is still yet unfinished and I've gone back and worked on it like I don't know how many times over the last fifteen years. So that was a hell of a learning experience. <laughs> but no, I think like hang on to the idea. I find if I spent that long on something and then hated it, that I would just like throw the idea away. So part of me's almost I... scared. Part of me's almost scared with this whole novel thing that I'm just going to give up partway through and just lose this like great idea that's kind of developing in my head right now. You know, I just feel don't like my comment about taking 15 years on something and not finishing it is discouraging because actually from that disaster i i have a couple of short stories that were published from it and i'm working on something that's like now that now that i have 15 years worth of of like character sketches and notes and subplots like i know these people like the back of my hand so i'm like pulling things out of it that i can use for actual productive work if you don't lose it unless you publish it it's not gone Yeah, I was uh, a couple of months ago. Um, there was an event here uh, with Megan Abbott and Chelsea Kane, 
uh, both of whom are fantastic writers, and I love them both. Yeah. And I really loved what Chelsea said, which was writing a novel is so fucking insane. And for her, it's like she'll get halfway through and be like, people, someone gave me money for this. Like, what the fuck is yeah. wrong with them? And she said, the trick is you just have to delude yourself. You just have to be deluded and convince yourself, yes, this is a totally reasonable thing that I can do, even though it's fucking insane and impossible. And, you know, as long as you're good at lying to yourself, eventually you're going to have a finished book. Yeah. I think feel like the halfway point is like universally agreed upon is like the worst part. The only thing I found worse than the halfway point was the halfway point of the second draft. Oh, girl. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I just, I did, like, for a week, just quit and, like, drank a lot on the second draft. Well, sometimes you just have to. Like, you need to distance yourself a bit and get, like, some fresh ideas. Because at least, well, from what I found with short stories, um, some of the stories in there, like Cat Calls and... Um, uh, better places. Those are two stories. Like the ideas behind them were things I tried to write several years before. Yeah. And I could just, it just, they just didn't work out. But I just kept the idea, um, just in like a notepad file on my computer, and just waited until there was like the right extra little bit of inspiration to get me to write that story. So I guess some ideas will just live in your head forever until you can actually write them out. But yeah. I have a, a whole folder on my computer full of like one and two paragraph long false starts or like a page long false start where I was like, this isn't going to fucking happen, but there's something here that maybe I shouldn't throw it away. Yeah. Yeah. I have a friend who will, he'll write a story and then he'll throw it out. And then two or three days later, he'll rewrite it because he believes that the good stuff he's going to remember anyway. And because he had a little bit of time for it to percolate, it's gonna, it's just gonna improve based on that. And uh, he's a fantastic writer, so I have to assume there's something to it. Yeah, I don't think I could do that. But I mean, like you were saying, is it's it's about figuring out your process, like the short stories as much as anything. Like I know, uh, like the most popular thing that people hate on about Nano is that you're writing too much, too fast. Um, but if you're if you're the kind of person that can sit down and knock out like 700 words in an hour, then all Nano is is like setting aside two hours every day. Yeah, it's and that's actually not that much. But if you're the kind of person who needs like to have like un, an uninterrupted like hour and a half long period just to get like a few lines out, then yeah, Nano is gonna like you're just gonna be pumping out loads and loads of shit during that time. But that's kind of the point. I mean, I went, went for, for my second book, I did like, I, I, I promised myself I was going to finish it. I did between twenty five and 30,000 words in one weekend. I just, I, I sat down yeah. and I just fucking worked until I wanted to die. And I'm going back and looking at it now and editing it. And I'm like, well, this is all really shitty, but at least the framework is there. You know, like now I can yeah. fix it and pretty it up and make it nice. I, I've never gotten that criticism of NaNoWriMo. It's like, if that works for you and that gets you working and gets the juices flowing, that's fine, you know. Well, it's supposed to be for beginners, right? Like, I, I try to do it every year. I didn't do it this year. It's just like, 
not going to fucking happen with all the other shit I had going on. But I try to do it every year, and it's, like, where I experiment with shit. Like, I wrote an erotic novel one year because I was like, I want to see if I can do it. And if, I, and if it sucks, hey, I only wasted a month, you know? Um, but when I first started doing it, for me, what it was is, like, I need permission to suck because I was having a hard time finishing things because I'd get inside my own head and worry about what it was like. And like, I legitimately, I think I've talked about this on the show before. I legitimately like put myself through like a self therapy where I pinned, um, that Ernest Hemingway quote, all first drafts are shit. I had that like everywhere it could be in my apartment. It was the screensaver on my, or the background on my computer. It was like on post-it notes it was back when people had flip phones. So when you open the phone it, where it would show your phone number, it would flash that at me. And it was like a process of me just being like, it is totally okay if what you write is just awful because you're going to have to rewrite it anyway. Yeah. So why agonize over it for a year if you're still going to have to agonize over it for a second draft? Anyway. I think when writing, you just get this idea in your head of how amazing the, like, finished product is going to be. And so you just, you can't let yourself be shitty at first. At least that's the way that I am. I get so critical of of what I'm trying to convey, and I just want to know it all immediately. Yeah. I mean, once if you've had a couple drinks and you put on the right music and you just get writing, then you can actually get into the story itself. But when it's just you and you're just thinking about you and the finished product, then you just really ruin your whole writing process. Absolutely. <laughs> but ego's the enemy, right? It's like, oh, I know. You can't compare the first page of your new rough draft to, like, the finished product of, like, the, the best story you've ever written. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I know. I know when I first originally tried to write cat calls that it just, it didn't work out the first time because I was just like, man, this story is going to say so much and people are just going to understand what street harassment is like. And, and then it wasn't until I just had that time to just really just crank out a story in a week that I was actually able to just finally get it on paper like, I don't know, there's just, like, that certain moment when you can actually just write something without really hating yourself or thinking you're going to be great for writing it in the end. Yeah, you find that, like, sweet spot between um, loving yourself and hating yourself. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, once you you have your draft printed out and you go through and edit it, like, I'll write all sorts of terrible things about myself in, in the columns and be like, this is such shit, Why, what, write better like, I'll just write stuff like that in the side just so I can kind of laugh at myself. Because you got to have a sense of humor about it. Yeah. Well, I edit all my own work by hand. And so I get some yeah. weird notes in mine, too. They're just, like, question marks. I try to edit it like I would do anybody else's stuff, which means that but I'm meaner to myself than I am to other people. Mm. I find that one of the most enjoyable experiences. It's, it's just kind of like scrapbooking your own writing. <laughs> taking just taking yourself at that that one piece in time like a picture of you as like a gawky teenager you should be like what the fuck is wrong with your hair but you're doing that <laughs> you're writing you're just like in the margin just what why why did you write that that's so dumb <laughs> yeah that's exactly what editing is 
And that's, I feel like, too, though, like, that's a big part of the reason that I have, like, a stack of short stories that are not ready to go out. Because you just have to be in the, like, you have to be in a good place in your life. Yeah, face you have to turn to the story and and get back into it, so. I try to think about all those things now that I'm trying to write a novel, or at least trying to put my head in the space to write a novel, so. I mean, we'll see how that goes in the next year. I don't know how you're supposed to write a novel with a baby in tow, but we'll see. Well, see here. See here's the thing, and the so for the first like, I don't know what like nine months, like they can't even fucking move. Like you put them <laughs> down, and they're just gonna stay there. Uh, they scream a lot, so yeah, I yeah, um, they scream a lot, and they also don't let you sleep very much. So <laughs> yeah, I, I was talking to someone recently who's who's a writer and has a kid, and he's like, he was like, you know, it's really not that bad because you you actually find yourself with some downtime. Uh, but that might have been his experience. I don't know. I'm sure it's different for everyone. But um, I don't know. This is why my um, my second novel is due February 1st, I think, uh, to my publisher. So I'm really trying to get it done by, like, the, the baby is due January 28th. I'm trying to get it done mid-January. And hopefully it'll be done and off and finished. And then I could just sort of, the baby will get here, and then I can figure out what the fuck is going on with the third. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely weird and kind of like okay, you know, I would just like to be done with this before these screaming little ball of flesh arrives in my house. See, and what's funny about that is I was talking to somebody just yesterday, and she was telling me how she has been trying to make writing fun for her again. Like this is I'm going to clean the house, and my reward for cleaning the house is I'm going to give myself an hour to write. Yeah. And that way she's excited to do it, and so she makes time for it. And I'm like, you know, that's awesome if it works for you, but I have to be the exact opposite. Like, I have to tell myself, this is my job. I have to do it. Otherwise, I will put everything else first and then be like, oh, well, it's midnight. It's time to go to bed. Yeah. <laughs> Usually I find, like, if I go and have a bath or something, then I come up with my best ideas and these great lines. And I'm like, man, after you get out of the bath, you're just going to get so much writing done. And then I do, and then I'm just like – surfing Facebook for, like, an hour or two. Yeah. Yeah. So sometimes That's, I'll bring, like, a notebook with me wherever I go, so at least I can just jot down those ideas and they'll be in my head and they won't be able to leave. I just looked up, I mean, I just looked up at the clock and was like, oh, my God, like, where did the hour go? So, okay. We're, we should be expecting the book in... 2015 summer, right? About. Um, here's the other thing I wanted to say at the start of the show. Here's a good. I'll bring it back around. At the start of the show, I mentioned that you and I met through like the ill-fated anthology project, and it, that was Grin on the Rocks, which is going to be in the book, right? Yeah. Was your story for that? See, I find that amazing because the story I wrote for it. It just sits in a folder where it's like, you know, maybe someday I'll go back and make that good. <laughs> like, you know, I don't know, because, like, like, where I am now versus where I was then, I'm just like, no. Yeah. But, but I, and I'm saying that, like, that's a testament to your talent, because I think Grin on the Rocks is a great story. Like, I mean, there are stories that it's related to. Yeah, well, but I remember there were two stories that really intimidated me in that project that ended up um, you know, getting to, to live outside 
and it grin on the rocks, which was your story. And uh, Jessica, our former co-host, Books and Booze co-founder, uh, perfectly natural. And those two stories, like, they made me feel like maybe I have some work to do before I'm ready to. Well, Grin on the Rocks has always scared me because I've just never thought of a market to send it to. Because it's just, I don't know, because it is, I mean, it, it is about rape. And it, it's just such a controversial topic. It's, it's just, it's been a story that sometimes I, even I wondered, I'm like, how are people going to react to this? Or, you know? Because <laughs> um, I think at least the antagonist, who is also the protagonist of Grin on the Rocks, um well he he's he's really the only true vile man in the whole collection at least in my point of view right or maybe one of the only two just straight up direct vile men i think the rest of the male characters in in the book at least have some sort of redemptive quality or a reason some sort of reason to their upbringing as to who who they are now but at least the character in Grin on the Rocks has always even just scared me. It didn't just because as a woman that I wrote him about him and it's just it's just been something that's always kind of freaked me out, at least with putting that story out and showing it to other people. Yeah, I mean I, I can understand that but see that's the thing is like it I feel like that's a mark of a great story is that that you were able to get so much inside that POV that but now you're like, man, I just don't know if I really want people to associate that character with me, <laughs> you know, because it is, it's like, it's, it is a scary, it's scary. It's, um, it's scary, but it's not like, it's not a horror story. And I think that's what makes it almost scarier. I, I remember talking to like my husband. Hmm? Go ahead. Oh, a lot of people say it's quite similar to um, American Psycho. Uh, which, oh, I can see that kind of. Yeah, I can I can understand it, um, and I guess that is that is a compliment. Um, but uh, so, what were you gonna say? I say I remember talking to my husband. Like we watched um, the Grindhouse movies, right? The Tarantino Rodriguez thing, and and we watched Death Proof. And I found the first half of that movie like it's it was really like it felt like a horror movie to me. And my husband was like, well, I mean, it was cool like it was a good movie i guess but it wasn't scary and i was like well yeah because if you go to the bar and you can't get a, a ride home and a stranger offers you a ride home like nine times out of ten you're gonna get home yeah <laughs> whereas like in at least whether it's true or not like women are raised to believe that if you get a ride home from the bar from a stranger like at minimum he's gonna try something if not fucking kill you like in the movie and so I think that's, like, one of the elements of Grin on the Rocks. It's, like, it's very realistic, and it speaks to, to like, the way that a lot of women were raised to believe, like, this is what life is going to be like. And, and if you are not, like, super, super, super careful all the time, you're screwed. Yeah. So. Anyway. So instead of ending on boobs, we're going to end on rape and murder. <laughs> Yeah, guys are assholes. being terrified all the time. Um, yeah, because we now we are legitimately we are out of time. So, boys and girls, boobs, rape and murder. Thanks for joining us. Uh, 
<laughs> we are once again being brought to you by Miss Massacre's Guide to Murder and Vengeance that actually has um, not quite all three of those things. Um, but plenty, plenty of, of crazy, pulpy, scary sometimes, and uber-violent, but also really heartfelt and awesome stuff in it. So definitely, because you're going to have to wait until 2015, summer 2015, to read Vile Men, now you have no excuse not to go and click on the banner and buy Miss Massacre's Guide to Murder and Vengeance and check that out in the meantime. It's about a vile woman, to bring it back around. Um, music this week is Our Love is Strange by Fine Steps. And Rebecca, thanks so much for being on the show. I'm so glad that we got to do this. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm excited at least came in and got to do it, even if I couldn't get drunk to do it. It's still nice. We'll find a way to get drunk together somehow. Oh, we I didn't know somehow. we were in the same time zone. It shouldn't even be that hard. Yeah, we're in the same time zone. So, like, once you're, like, kind of, <laughs> you know, like, we'll we'll Skype drink. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, that's the show.